Yo, what is up? Welcome to Ambitious. My name is Dylan Price. Today's guest is a suicide survivor who now stands as an image of the ideal that it gets better. He is now a suicide prevention speaker. He's established the Kevin and Margaret Hines Foundation. He's a filmmaker, YouTuber, and all-around storyteller. Or storyteller. Most of all, he's a survivor and a depiction of someone who's been in the darkest place and got out. Today's guest is an inspiration. He is the one and only Kevin Hines. Kevin, how are you doing? That was one heck of an intro, Dylan. Thank you very much. I'm doing well. It's a good mental health day. How are you? I'm doing very good. So uh, one thing about you that drew me to you right away is you're very charismatic and outgoing. Very true. Very true. Um, so kind of going right, diving into it, uh, for the audience members listening to this who don't know your story, can you kind of briefly tell them your story of everything that happened to you? Absolutely. Uh, my name is Kevin Hines, and uh, I live with a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, type 1 with psychotic features. That means that I have manic, delusional, grandiose highs, and I crash into terrifying, depressive lows and, and uh, the abysses of depression where I feel like there's a kind of a black cloud raining over my head, rain, hail, sleet, and snow, and I think I'm the only one. Um, Clearly, that's not the case. There's 27.5 million Americans live with the diagnosis of bipolar disorder around the country. And uh, I, I was diagnosed, and I, I wasn't adequately following a treatment plan. I was haphazardly following one. I was lying to my family and friends about my mental well-being and my doctors. Uh, and on, in, in the month of September of the year 2000, it got so bad that I began to think and contemplate suicide on a regular basis, and I ended up attempting to take my life by jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, it was easily the greatest mistake I'd ever made in my life, and upon the millisecond of freefall, I had this instantaneous regret for my actions and the 100% recognition that I just made the greatest mistake in my life. It was too late. Uh, I always say that you know, for 99% of those who have attempted off the Golden Gate Bridge, it's been too late. Only 1% of the populace that's ever made that attempt has survived, roughly 39 people. Of those 39 people, I would be number 26 to attempt. Um, of those who remain alive today, uh, there's only about 25 remaining alive today. Many have died of natural causes in old age since their attempt. Uh, of those 25, 19 have come forward to say the exact same thing I did, that they had an instant regret from their actions. And only five of us, 25, get the privilege to stand, walk, and run. They call us the most exclusive survivors club in the world in the book of the same name. But... Rather than go on about the bridge and the jump and the fall, which everyone seems to, to talk about, I prefer much, much more prefer to talk about how I found, live, and stay in recovery every day, one day at a time. Um, I, I'm a person who lives with regular and chronic thoughts of suicide, but they'll never, they'll never take me. I believe I'll never die that way because every time I'm suicidal, I will ask for help to anyone who's willing to listen in front of me, near me, next to me, whether I know them from Adam or not, I'm going to ask them to and beg them to help keep me safe from myself in that situation. Um, I live and stay in recovery today uh, through a regimen of steps I take to stabilize my mental brain, mind, and behavioral health. Uh, those steps can be easily found at youtube.com slash Kevin Hines under the playlist under the Art of Wellness. It's a 10-step regimen. 12 videos, three to five minutes each, on how to better balance your brain health, scientifically proven to do so, uh, science-based evidence-informed information to stabilize your, your brain health, whatever you're going through. 
mentally. Um, and those 10 steps include things like education as to my diagnosis, um, meditation, medication, exercise, my eating habits, um, and, and much, much more, uh, allowing me to, to stay stable most days to the best of my ability. Now, obviously, I'm not going to dive deep into the story because you're past that now and you've moved on. But what was the first reaction when you did realize that you were alive? You survived and it was now time to move on with your life with a greater acceptance and value of life. My, my, my experience was in the water, just desperately trying to survive, desperately trying to stay alive until the Coast Guard boat arrived behind me. Um, prior to that, a, a sea lion came to my aid and kept me afloat until the Coast Guard boat actually arrived. Uh, in the hospital, uh, I had pneumonia, and they thought I was going to die. Um, but all I wanted to do was live. I knew I made a, a mistake, and in finding this out, uh, I would go on a path of a journey to, to find a better way of living with these thoughts without allowing them to take my life. And in that, I found my lovely wife, Margaret, I found that I would rebuild relationships with my family and my friends, and I found that life was worth living and, and, and that I had value and that I mattered and that suicide never had to be the solution to my problem, that it was, in fact, a problem, uh, and that I, you know, deserved this life until my natural end. Now, ultimately, you, move on, or you moved on from that and you rebounded significantly, and that was something I immediately was drawn to you um, when I heard your story, and I actually heard your story in Logan Paul's um, documentary thing, his kind of comeback following his accidents, and you and him have a friendship. What kind of, what was your initial reaction to him following his incident with everything and kind of teaching him the same things that you preach now about suicide? You know, it was great to meet Logan, and, and, and we've become friends. Uh, I got to sit down with him for a good two, three hours before we ever went into the making the video Beer Tomorrow. I got to name that video Beer Tomorrow in the first place. That was a, a phrase I coined years ago. Um, it's our movement, it's our mantra. And that video, uh, for, for all the people that are angry at Logan, you know, he, he's, he was a 22-year-old kid when he made that mistake, and, and who hasn't made huge mistakes when they were 22? What he ended up doing with his mistake was really finding redemption and, and finding me uh, and sharing a story of hope. And hundreds of kids have written into that video, Beer Tomorrow, and said it saved their life. And hundreds of kids have said that it continues to save their life as they, uh, when they get suicidal, they rewatch it. So the video, had, for all intents and purposes, did what it was supposed to do by reaching 30 million people around the world who it wouldn't have reached before, prior to. And I... I love Logan. He's a, he's a great dude. I consider him to be a brother now. Um, I'm going to the fight on November 9th um, as a, as a, as a you know, guest of his with my wife. Um, respect him dearly and uh, wish him nothing but the best. He, he, he really is trying to do things that are great for this, this cause of suicide prevention. He immediately dropped $250,000 for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which actually most people don't know this, but saved two lifeline uh, um offices from going under. Uh, he did that immediately. Uh, and then uh, next to that, 
he gave our foundation, the Kevin and Margaret Hines Foundation, found at kmhinesfoundation.org. He gave us $60,000 to utilize for scholarships for people in pain to get them to get uh, things like Talkspace or free therapy online uh, and to do some suicide prevention research through the American Association of Suicidology. So that money went in directly back into suicide prevention and mental health and well-being. So he's doing his part to make a difference, the difference that most people can't make in their lifetime. So I, I have a great appreciation for LP. He uh, he completely turned everything around following a very detrimental situation, and he's very much moved past that now. And he's it's all kind of coming full circle this Saturday when he takes on KSI in the fight that's on the zone November ninth. Uh, obviously, it's evident you'll be riding with him, and uh, hopefully he can pull that win off. But kind of shifting gears a little bit, um, you have been very outspoken about preventing suicide and being about be here tomorrow and what ultimately do you feel is the leading driver in depression and suicide do you believe it's a genetic thing or do you believe it's sort of a not people or people are just not nice to one another in this society and day and age i think that it's it's all of the above it's genetic it's uh it's 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 societal it's cultural it's structural um we live in a society today where suicide is considered an option within a society today that has lost its sense of community. We live in a technologically advanced society that is advancing in new technologies every day that are getting farther and farther away from human true connection. Um, I'm one that loves technology and all its wonders and all that it can do, but there's a time to put down the devices, put down the cameras, put down the phones, and engage in real-time activity with human beings with a one-on-one real connection or a group connection. Um, and I think that if we could find a way to get back to a better balance between those two, we, we would live in a much better society with much less suicide. Now, how do you feel we can get to a better balance? You know, I think we can get to a better balance uh, simply by educating people about their, their pain. Um, we, we, we need to help people hold gratitude inside their pain so that they can find resilience so they can stay here. And I think that's really the answer is a couple things. Reduction of access to lethal means. Make it more difficult for people to die by suicide in all, in all the ways you can, number one. Number two, um, utilize things like what was working in the past, like Jerry Motto's caring letters, where letters would go out to people who were relieved from psych wards out into the public and they would get letters every couple of months asking them how they're doing, letting them know that we care, letting them know that they hold value, that they're worthy, and that they matter. Those letters actually were proven to save lives. Um, uh, doing things that we know work and, and, and helping people see their life's passion through into fruition would help them stay here so they know they have a purpose. If you have a purpose, you can find hope. If you can find hope, you can stay. Um, and that's how I do it every time I'm suicidal as I bring myself back to a calm and I find out where my purpose is and I move forward. Now, why do you feel that there is a sort of stigma around getting help? Well, there's a massive stigma around getting help. Let's call it what it is. Discrimination is the real term. Uh, they didn't call it bigotry, prejudice, and, and, and hatred uh, stigma. They just called it bigotry, hatred, and, 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 and uh, prejudice. 
And I think that there's a great prejudice and great marginalization against those with mental struggles. Once we lift that veil from society and see that we all have issues, we all have problems, we all have ups and downs, um, and each of us has a mental capacity that can wane, and that, that is on, on a series of ebb and flow. It's an up and a down. Um, if we could be more sensitive and empathetic to people in that kind of pain, we could all move forward appropriately to reduce the quote-unquote stigma from people's viewpoints so that they can respect those with mental struggles and understand they're human beings too. Ultimately, what could have prevented you from taking that leap, from getting to that point? I think what would have prevented me from getting to that point would have had to have started when I was in fourth grade. I believe there should be a fourth grade level education for suicide prevention, brain, mind, behavioral, mental health, and mental well-being in a comprehensive way that a fourth grade child can comprehend. Um, I think this country made a great mistake in only educating in science, mathematics, history, language, and literature. We should have been educating people into how to maintain positive brain, mind, behavioral, mental health from a very young age, which is what New York State is trying to do right now. Uh, they were the first states in the country to, to uh, uh, mandate fourth grade level, level education for suicide prevention and mental health. It's something that needs to sweep the nation and something that Margaret and I and the Kevin Margaret Hines Foundation are dedicated to trying to help accomplish. Now, I live in New York State, and this was something actually our teacher was just talking about with us recently, is that um, curriculum nation or statewide is going to change and be more mental health um, oriented to try to prevent people from suicide and from getting into these dark places and getting into these states. And it's going to start at a younger age. And I think that's a very great thing and a very great thing that you and Margaret and the Margaret, Kevin and Margaret Hines Foundation is preaching. So very good to you um, on that one and kind of getting a big change, especially already in New York State and eventually nationwide. So very good on that one. Thank you. Um, one of the biggest questions I think that people with depression or suicidal thoughts or anything get is um, who really can they trust? Who can you go to in that kind of situation? Because you don't know who is going to report you, who's going to just call you off and say you're psycho or kind of degrade your every or degrade everything. And that kind of does go back to the stigma behind it. But what is your opinion on that? You know, I think that there might be those people that degrade you or put you down when you're going through that kind of pain and it makes it hard to talk about. But, but there are so many people willing to open up that conversation. And I think, you, I, think, I think that being vulnerable in your pain, as in being able to speak upon it, um, I always say a pain shared is a pain have. And I think that you'll, where you find the people that don't understand and don't comprehend it, are against your, your movement forward, I think you find a lot more people willing to listen to you. Now, when somebody ultimately in, gets into a situation where they have fallen into that deep hole, what would you say to someone who is in the situation of trying to get them out and trying to rationalize their thoughts even if they think that um, it's too far? 
I would say be patient, be empathetic throughout, and manage your expectations of that individual. They're going through a hell of a lot in their head that most of us cannot comprehend who don't go to mental pain. Please find a way to reach them to kindness, compassion, unconditional love, empathy, and a lack of judgment entirely. Now, one thing you, and I've seen one of your Instagram posts about this and heard it before, is you said you used to say yes to everything until you realized it was okay to say no. Can you kind of elaborate on that quote and that thought process? Sure. Um, Basically, you know, saying yes to um, every presentation that was asked of me to give all around the world, it it took its toll on me. And I realized that if I, I just backed off a little bit and and took a little more me time and family time, uh, I could recharge my battery and be more effective in the field. Uh, So saying no to some things is important so that you can have a better life balance, work-life balance. And saying no in general of multiple things being asked of you in personal lives and just everything in general, how essential do you feel that is to keeping yourself mentally stable? It's crucial. I mean, it, it, it's, uh, saying no to those things that are over overpacking your schedule are, are, is important so you can maintain a true life balance and a and a better mental well being. It's been it's been imperative to to me being able to be out there in the first place doing the good work. Now, one thing more often than not with depression, mental health, um, everything in that nature as well is it's often discredited. Um, youth emotions and like especially teenage emotions and feelings on the thought process of mental health. How do you feel that adults specifically should deal with teenagers uh, having these thoughts of depression and suicide at a young age? I think that uh, teenagers having to deal with this, uh, these thoughts need to be more vocal about them so that their parents and their loved ones can help them survive. I think that's the biggest problem is we have this culture in this society where we perceive this burdensomeness that we're burdened, we're burdened to those who love us, so we stay silent. But that perceived burdensomeness is internalized. It's not something that's coming from outside. It's something that's coming from within. For every spiteful, hateful, hurtful thing that's ever been done to us, every time we've been bullied or hazed, every time we've been pushed down or pushed aside by anyone, we internalize those feelings and thoughts. And then when it comes right down to either telling the truth about our pain or keeping it inside, we tend to keep it inside because of fear. I'm suggesting to people that they'd be surprised how often people would be willing to help if they just opened their mouths and asked for it. Um, maybe not the first person. Maybe not the second person. But eventually you'll find someone willing to sit with you in your pain and help you stay. How do you find as you preach, be here tomorrow, and finding something that makes you want to be here for tomorrow? Uh, for me, wanting to be here tomorrow is a day-by-day um, process, and I, I go back to my core values. My, my wife helps me be here tomorrow. My father helps me be here tomorrow. My family, my friends, my confidants, um, uh, you know, uh, some social media connections have, on one occasion or two occasions helped me be here tomorrow. Um, and I utilize all of those connections to stay one day at a time. And I, I 
I appreciate that because I'm always able to find a reason or the reason to, to fight the pain. Um, that mantra be tomorrow comes from a, a uh, from the gut. It comes from a place of trying to be here just one 24-hour period at a time. I don't I don't have two-cell thoughts every day, but when I have them, that notion really helps me helps me stay. Now, what would you say? And this is something that I've never been full frontal with on the podcast, but something I'll admit in this kind of conversation and I was prepared to admit is what do you would you say with someone who doesn't constantly have those depressed thoughts or constantly have those days? But what do you say to someone who occasionally has those moments where they just feel like they're in those days or those hours of just a dark place and needing something, just even the littlest thing to get them out of that hole? I, I would say that no matter what you're going through today, no matter the pain you're experiencing, it doesn't mean that you don't get to have that beautiful tomorrow. But you have to be here to get there in the first place. And I, I would also say, hard work is nothing good ever came without it, as my father Patrick always said. I say that in almost all of my presentations and, and podcasts because people don't recognize how much hard work it takes to stabilize your brain health when you are unwell. And if you put in the hard work, you will get to a better place, and you can fight the pain. Now, kind of shifting gears a little bit to other things you do, how vital and often do you feel that it is to talk to the younger generations and even college students about everything that you preach and kind of share your message? You know, I, I think it's... Uh, it, it's certainly the greatest, most valued therapeutic thing I've been able to do is to talk about my, my struggles with audiences of all kinds. But certainly with high school, grade school, and college students, it's been amazing to see the reaction and the and the, uh, the conversation that's had afterwards. Uh, you know, I'm talking about hundreds of kids or students coming off the bleachers or down from the stands and sharing with me their story or stories and how they too survived the pain and how this presentation was helpful to them. So, you know, the more we can get people like me to talk about these things, people with lived experience, lived expertise, the better. I am not alone in this fight. There are thousands of people from around the world, maybe even hundreds of thousands of people who have this lived experience, these lived experience tales to tell. And I think if we tell them in a way that is safe, that is appropriate, and that ends in hope, resilience, and recovery, then we can save lots of lives. Now, shifting gears a lot here, what is, and you've talked about this before, your affliction with Dwayne The Rock Johnson and Ryan Reynolds and the roles they played, What? how did that play a part in everything you do? You cut off there, just ask that question one more time. So you've talked about Dwayne The Rock Johnson and Ryan Reynolds and his Deadpool character in the past. Kind of explain to my audience your resonance and everything with those characters and those people. Yeah. Yeah, I mentioned that on the on the Logan Paul podcast, on the Impulsive podcast, that's how Ryan Reynolds and, and, and Dwayne Rock Johnson saved my life. I'll break it down to you. Um, in, in high school, my father had bought me the book The Rock Said It, and that book became my Bible because there was this, a, a passage, and I would highlight several places in the book that meant so much to me. But that, that book uh, became a, my, my second Bible, if you will, uh, because of a, of a passage in it about defeating depression and having faith in the human condition. And 
and that The Rock and, and you know Dwayne Johnson The Rock went, went through severe depression, uh, close to suicidal thinking, and he defeated it uh, through a mantra of his own uh, of, of staying here. Um, we all know that even now, um, his mom did attempt to take her life, and he, he saved her life from from dying, as then he pushed her out of the way of a moving truck, um, and and put himself at risk to do so. Um, so he has a really close connection to both suicide and depression. And um, in reading that book, uh, it would help me get through every psych ward stay I was ever in until my fifth psych ward stay. Um, and by the way, the book was autographed by The Rock, which is very important and special to me. Um, I thought I'd wait in line to get it, to get it autographed. And uh, when... When I was in my fifth psych ward today, out of nine in my lifetime, there was a young man named Eduardo, a young uh, Mexican kid named Eduardo, who was in the, in the psych ward with me. And he looked at the book and he said, I need that more than you do. And I remember thinking, oh, no, buddy, I'm not, not giving away this book. This is really special because it's autographed. He goes, no, you understand, I need it more than you do. As in he was suicidal right then. And I had told him about the passage you know, a week prior to in the psych ward and how it helped me. Um, I let go of the book. I gave it to this kid. I think I even wrote my own note in it for his, his uh, mental well-being. And I passed on the, the, the good word uh, that I had gotten from that book um, that had helped me stay here for so many years. And I, don't, I, I realized I didn't need the physical manifestation of the book in my hands anymore. I always had the message from the rock in my head. And in having that, he absolutely helped save my life because when I initially read that passage was when I was most contemplating suicide, um, and it kept me from attempting in that particular situation. Now, next to that, Ryan Reynolds and his portrayal of Deadpool, and really the Deadpool character in itself, Deadpool's character in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and in the Marvel Comics is synonymous with pain. Deadpool, the character, was born in pain, in physical, immeasurable pain. I say I was born in pain as well, uh, in squalor, uh, in, in a crack motel. Um, that's where my life was, was, you know, began. I, my, my birth parents were on drugs and alcohol, and I had a, a, a horrible traumatic infancy because of it. Uh, I was said with mom and dad could steal Kool-Aid, Coca-Cola, and sour milk was my first diet. I had a distended belly filled with liquid and a bruise from the top of my sternum to the bottom of my abdomen from being malnourished for so long. Um, so yes, like Deadpool, I was born in pain, and I relate greatly to that character. And I relate greatly to Ryan Reynolds, the actual actor, because of his battle with anxiety. I, I, I battle with anxiety. Um, it's a big part of my diagnosis. Um, not many people know this. I don't talk about it very often. It's been something that has almost kept me from walking on stage a, a, a hundred times. Um, but I always push through, and I get, get the job done. Um, but it's, it's, it's Ryan Reynolds' constant messaging on his media interviews about his crippling anxiety that helps me thrive inside mine. Now, something, especially in the profession you were in, like um, having that constant presentations and speaking and everything, anxiety definitely plays a part in my kind of question, follow-up to that, is do you get stage fright and everything before you go on to stage and to speak and to do videos and all that stuff? It's not stage fright. I, I'm well aware of stage fright because I, I did a lot of theater training. I don't have stage fright. Uh, I get I get these panic attacks 
that have more to do with a worry about being murdered. Um, I have a, a, my greatest fear and paranoid delusion centers around an audience attacking me. Um, it's, it's something I've thought about in my severe paranoid delusions many, many a time. It was actually the first sign of my disease back in when I was 17. I was on a stage in front of 1,200 people, and I thought that the 1,200 person audience was going to rest the stage and end my life. Obviously, illogical, not rational, completely without logic, but I, I believe it to be a reality. Um, that's more of a psychosis type thing than it is an anxiety or a, or a panic, really. But they, they kind of all play a role in, in, the, in, the, in the process of my you know, un, unadulterated fear in that sense. Does that make sense? Yes. Um, one, I definitely I suffer with anxiety as well, and I think a lot of people suffer with anxiety, especially even more than they know, and that um, constant, like, the crippling anxiety, sort of like you described and, like, Ryan Reynolds has described. How do you feel on a just day-to-day level you can cope with your anxiety and handle it and keep it controlled? The best way to cope with anxiety is to talk about it with someone who loves you who's willing to hear you and not judge you. That is the best way to cope with anxiety. And if you don't have someone right there with you to cope with you with that anxiety, definitely text the crisis text line. You can text CNQR to 741741, crisis text line. That's our foundation's conquer keywords. That's for conquer your pain. The C stands for courage to talk about your mental health. N stands for normalize the conversation. Q stands for ask those questions. Are you suicidal and do you have a plan that opens thoughts with mine and give them permission to speak on their pain? And R stands for recovery. I'm pointing at myself with my thumb right now, living proof. And so if you can find someone to conversate with, text with, interact with about your anxiety, you can overcome it. Well, um, another question for you. This is completely out of the realm of the kind of deeper stuff we've been talking about. But what are your hobbies outside of doing your speaking and everything else you do? Um, I love sketch artistry. Uh, I, I collect comic books. Love collecting comic books. Love drawing, sketching, cartoon, and comic book characters. Um, I, absolutely, my biggest hobby, though, I have to say, is hanging out with my wife, Margaret, and just having a nice paseo, a, a Spanish word for drive, uh, where I reside. And um, um, we just enjoy each other's company, and that's the best way for me to, to decompress and to get away from it all. Now, Kevin, one question I always ask every guest on this show is, and it's kind of comes from the name ambitious and everything, but what is ultimately, and this is a deeper question, your legacy you want to leave when it's all said and done, when it is your time to say farewell? It's very, very simple. I want to leave this world with people knowing that I was a good human being who cared deeply, realistically, and adamantly about every other human being on the planet. I want to leave this world a good person, and I want to leave a mark on the world that understands that I try to make it a better place. That's it. Now, Kevin, I said this in the beginning, and I'll say it as I kind of close off this interview. You were, when I started this podcast, one of the list of the people that I dreamed to sit down with and have an interview with. So I'm very, very honored that I could 
today talk to you and kind of discuss some of this stuff because maybe a lot more minor than yours, a hell of a lot more minor than yours, but I dealt with anxiety and dealt with um, occasions where I've been in that sad spot, not depressed, but sad spot and kind of didn't know how to operate for a little bit. But it's very, very powerful to look at someone like you on social media, look at someone like you doing podcasts, doing YouTube, doing all this stuff and show people that it gets better. I mean, you were in a very dark place and you battled like hell and got the hell out of it. And yes, you still may deal with stuff, but you constantly are able to keep it in check and contain it and you have your ways of doing it. And it's so admirable and something it's incredibly inspiring and you're one of the bucket list people that I want to have on this show. So thank you so very much for coming on. Thank you, my friend. It was a great conversation we just had. I'm really grateful for it. I really appreciate you for making it all happen. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kevin Hines, for coming on the show. Once again, I want to thank Kevin Hines for taking the time to come on Ambitious. He was a guest I've always wanted to lock down, sit down with, a guy who really inspires me and I really idolize. He's a guy who can kind of show that no matter how bad it gets, you can always rebound and battle back. Guy I really admire and very excited that I got to sit down with him and pick his brain for a little bit, talk to him about his story and everything with it. I hope you loved the episode. I hope you leave us a great review in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, wherever you can listen to Ambitious. Check us out on at Ambitious Podcast on Instagram, at Ambitious with a DP on Twitter. We will be back here next week with another great interview. We have a loaded November that you won't want to miss. A special November announcement as well coming on November 27th, my birthday. It's a big month for Ambitious. Stay tuned, Ambitious listeners, and have a wonderful week.